Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Micah Maddox joins us today. He is, of course, poetry editor of our magazine here, First Things, and he's also professor of English at Regent University. He's the author of The Soul is a Stranger in This World, and he's now the co-editor of a new book, Christian Poetry in America Since 1940, an anthology uh, with Sally Thomas. This is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Maddox. Thank you for having me. All right, quick question. Why start at 1940? No, 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 I have another question. Are you an administrator in the English department? No, not anymore. I, I gave I gave that uh, that that you, purgatory up, so. You were chairman. That's right. Okay, the emails have gone down. Okay, yeah, that's, that's right. right. They have, they have <laughs> gone down significantly. Yes, they have, yeah. <laughs> good, good, good. A little more peace over the summer. So, yeah. uh, all right, so we'll get to the book. Why start this anthology at 1940? Any particular reason? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so we've started with uh, 1940 is not the the oldest poem in in the anthology. It's the the birth date of Paul Mariani, and so we were looking at poets who were born in 1940 and after. Okay. Um, that's um, in a sense that's a bit of a just a, a pragmatic choice. We wanted to highlight uh, poets that were indebted to figures like Auden and Eliot and Richard Wilbur and uh, Thomas Merton and Marianne Moore and so forth, whom everyone knows. Um, but uh, but who uh, kind of took poetry in their own way and and who are not given, I think, the attention that these other figures, of course, are already given. And so it was a, just a pragmatic date for us to focus on this group of poets. Okay. You have an introduction which raises several substantive issues about Christian poetry of history and definition. And one thing that you mentioned in there that we should note for our readers is a, a, quote, revival of Christian poetry in America. What do you see going on? That's a great question. I think uh, maybe revival is not the quite word, the quite the right, right word. I, 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 no, no, I'm revival. I like yeah. revival. Yeah, you like, <laughs> uh, yeah, as a Catholic, you need to be careful with that, right? Don't you? No, yeah, I guess not. Uh, so, um, so, yeah, I think on the one hand, the, these, uh, these poets have been working sort of uh, behind the scenes, not getting the attention that they deserve. The focus uh, and the national conversation are poets who get published in the New Yorker and Paris Review and academic part, uh, departments. It's uh, poets that are indebted to folks like Frank O'Hara and John Ashbery. Um, and so you have this group of poets writing in the 1980s and, and, and 90s who are not getting that attention. And so on the one hand, it's not a revival. It's been going on for a long time. And the anthology is there to sort of call the attention of the reader to these to these poets. On the other hand, there, there has been a, a revival. And, and part of that is because um, mainstream poets have sort of abandoned a narrative in poetry. 
they've abandoned form for the most part. Um, they try to write um, poems that are that are flat, uh, purely material, and that left a space, I think, for these very talented poets to draw from the sources of Christianity that which gets a foundation for these things and to, 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 to write their, their, their poetry. And so, um, so it is a revival in, in that sense, you know, it kind of goes back to what we had in the early 20th century of, of folks like Auden and Eliot, who were sort of the preeminent um, Christian um, poets. And, and these folks are sort of indebted to, to them in many ways. So, um, so yeah, revival in that sense, but also, um, so this is an opportunity to just uh, direct folks' attention to what's been happening for a long time. Where do you set the boundaries? You know, when you're when you're doing an anthology, it's always the tough part is the selection, right? What goes in, what goes out? Where do you set the boundaries or how for what counts as Christian poetry? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's a hard uh, question to answer. I mean, on the one hand, Christian poetry, folks might say, well, you know, there's no such thing as Christian chemistry or uh, uh, Christian physics. Uh, or Christian math, you know, there's there's just good math and bad math in the same way with poetry. There's there's good poetry and bad poetry. And, and there's folks who've answered that question in, in a couple of different ways. You've had, uh, I think, individuals who think of Christian poetry as largely anything that Christians write, which is not the best definition, um, or only poems that engage theology directly, um, which is better, but uh, but it doesn't quite give you the full range of what these poets are 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 doing, um, and so for us, so I guess the first limitation is Christian. We we focused on poets who were in fact uh, believers, or you know, um, uh, you might say you know uh, recovering believers. I mean, there's sort of a bit of a gray area, but 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 who um, whose work is really very much influenced by the the, the Christian the Christian faith, and um, whose poems. Uh, dealt with uh, Christian topics in some way or another. So another line for us is to avoid merely, quote-unquote, spiritual writing. There's lots of anthologies that um, you have of, of, of spiritual uh, poets. Uh, we wanted something a bit more specific, not because there's anything wrong with those, but because um, poets who are writing, sort of engaging uh, Christian faith slightly more uh, directly are, are not getting the attention, we think. Um, and so we wanted these poems to um, engage some aspect of the Christian walk, whether it's actual doctrine or sometimes just doubt, uh, things like, you know, humility and pride, the daily struggles. Um, so, so that was another sort of line for us is, is that sort of content line. And I guess the third line, too, is poets who had a high view of form and, uh, and narrative um, and um, who understood that the world is there's a twofold uh, twofold aspect to reality of, of both material and, and and spiritual. And and so we wanted poems that sort of engage, you know, um, with with those uh, with those aspects. And so you'll see that there's not only formal, we have free verse poets as well in there, but, but all of the poets, poets, poets and poems continued, uh, contained in, in, in the, in the collection. Um, they, they do exemplify this high view of, of, of narrative and form in some way. One of the crucial distinctions that you bring up in your introduction is when C.S. Lewis uh, talks about literature. He does say, as you put it, yeah, good poetry, bad poetry, good literature, bad poetry. But there is a, quote, Christian approach 
to literature, and that's going to be quite different from a secular, a non-Christian approach to literature. What what characterizes that Christian approach? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, C.S. Lewis, he said, you know, there's, there's not a Christian way to boil an egg, which is a great little, uh, you know, quote there. But yeah. Um, well, there is, there is. I, I, we'll, we'll get to the, we'll, I, I can explain it in another show, but go ahead. That's right. Three minute eggs are Christian eggs, right? Uh, so, um, yeah. So, so what we sort of came down on is that a Christian approach to to literature um, is is one that is mimetic that that does understand what the poet is is doing is represent uh, sort of a, there's a representational aspect to uh, to the writing and and this is actually different from what you have uh, more recently in contemporary poetry where uh, poets uh, who are trying to write very flat verse trying to avoid symbols in any ways, trying to write a verse that has no narrative structure. Uh, and so you have this in the language poets and so forth from the 1970s up until even the, the present. Um, and so a, a Christian approach to literature is one that is not, not ashamed of narrative or, or symbol, but sees them as sort of certain aspects. It's, it's an aspect of, of, our, of our lives and of actual of, of, of language. And so um, so it's that mimetic function of, of, of poetry, and that mimetic function is not just in the subject matter, but it's also in the form as well. And so uh, you have poets who, who you know, might write um, verse that, that uh, treats everyday events, and those events are symbolic of, of something else. Or you might have poets who are trying to crap, capture something of reality in the form of the poem and in the progress of the poem. Is it? Is there a way for Christian poetry to be, more than anything else, a vehicle of self-expression? That's the primary purpose of my poem, self-expression. Not soul expression, self-expression. No, that's the short answer. Um, <laughs> now, it can start in self-expression, you know, that uh, the, the poet is, is dealing with materials that are uh, largely... Um, inward. And so it, it must start with something that one feels, that one thinks, that one observes in the world, you know, around one. Um, so it does start with self, but uh, the goal is to go beyond self. Um, it's, the goal is not to write poetry that is merely therapeutic. Um, the goal is to write poetry that actually um, recreates an experience for the reader that has some sort of objective value and has objective standards that the reader can evaluate. And so, so with Christian poetry, you do find that it's not, even though it starts in itself, it's not confessional that we might think of in, in Robert Lowell or uh, other uh, Sylvia Plath and so forth. Um, but it does start with that, that, that experience, but it tries to transform or draw from the self to create something that is objective, that's external to the self, that is an object of sorts that can be experienced uh, by the reader. If there's no spiritual recognition even implied in in the poem recognition in w- within the poet the speaker or recognition of nature whatever the thing described happens to be any way for that to be christian poetry yeah that's a good question i guess i would ask you what you meant by spiritual because there is a sense in which anything like even making a cup of coffee uh can have certain spiritual significance and so I think a, a, a poem that simply um, 
stops with states of affairs and doesn't um, try to get at the um, sort of the, um, you know, spiritual nature of even those everyday objects and the significance of those everyday objects. I think uh, they're always trying to do that. There's one poem that we include by Tanya Runyon, uh, and it's a wonderful little poem. Um, she's writing about uh, driving in her car with her child who uh, spills a Slurpee in the, the back seat, you know, and uh, and her response to that, which is, you know, initially not very Christian. And uh, then she goes on to write about uh, ice cream in, in, in the freezer, Cherry uh, Garcia, you know, and how she's unable to uh, to leave it in the freezer for very long before eating it all. And and. Um, and so sort of, sort of lashing at her, her, her lack of spiritual discipline here. Um, and so you take those objects and she does in, in a wonderful way, sort of turns them and, and, and shows how even though, you know, you, you, you may not have Cherry Garcia in the fridge, we all struggle uh, uh, with our, our sense of discipline and, um, and wonder if, if we lack that discipline, we lack those spiritual practices, and what does that mean for us? Are, are, we, are we believers or, or, or not? And so... Um, so that's maybe an extreme example, but she takes those everyday objects and, and transforms them into 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 something else. Um, but other other poems, you know, make it maybe a, a, a smaller step. You know, uh, Robert B. Shaw, he 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 writes about uh, dust mites, and and as he's looking at these dust mites going up and down, you now he thinks about the, the shortness of life uh, and um, what awaits us all. Um, not in a, that directly, obviously, you know, that would be, but uh, but in a very suggestive way, sort of. Uh, says, you know, these these everyday objects, they all point to something beyond us. They all do. And to, to think that they simply point at themselves is to really misunderstand reality. I'm going to read those, those lines in that poem. I looked it up. Uh, it's in the middle of the poem. When my son spills a lime green mega slush in the car, I should sing, let's call the paper towel fairy. But instead, bang the dash, crap, pay more attention and tail the fluff-headed Bonneville driver all the way home. So there, 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 there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Uh, so that, that, that's nice. That, that's good. Uh, in your introduction, you then turn to Jacques Maritain. Mm -hmm. What is his position on the Christian poetry, self-expression? Why do you bring him in? Yeah, I bring him in because he's actually pretty critical about uh, mimesis or the idea that art represents other things. And and he was very much against the idea that that art actually represents physical objects um, and um, that it, it should um, represent, you know, uh, the spiritual forces at work underneath those objects. And so he was obviously you know, a big fan of, of, of Cubism and a lot of a lot of mo modern art and critic of, of, of modern art. Um, but I bring him in because I think he actually is a little bit unfair to to Mimesis. He, he does understand it in, in, in purely physical ter terms and um, and, you know, that's not always what's happening. And so we can have poets that are, um, that are trying to capture, you think it's just something very basic, like narrative itself, right? The narrative is not a physical object and yet it structures so much of our daily lives. And, and so poets who try to incorporate narrative in their uh, poetry, that's, that is kind of mimesis. It's a kind of, of, of trying to represent uh, the sequence of time, at least as we experience here at this moment, um, and, and how time ebbs and flows. Um, so that's just one example, I think, of how he maybe mistakes mimesis. And I wanted to use him to point to the fact that when we talk about poet, poetry that is representational, we're not just talking um, about uh, you know, 
figurative uh, poems, but that we're talking also about some of the structures, symbolism um, as well that you have in, in poetry. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Speaking of my muses, your next major thinker in the essay is Eric Auerbach, right. whose book, My Mises, we all read in graduate school, you know, in our theory courses, even though the book goes back to, is that 39 when My Mises was? Yes, published? I think it was 39, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but interesting distinction he draws. He, he's talking about how writers represent the world mm-hmm. in, in their literature. My Mises. How does My Mises work here and here and here? And he distinguishes the Homeric from the biblical mode of representation. What is the difference there? Yeah, for Auerbach, he says that in, in Homer, everything is 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 forward. It's um, all narrative. There's uh, no symbols involved at all. The story is meant to be immediately gratifying, um, and there's no sort of secondary or third meeting behind the the actions or the plot. I think he's a little bit unfair. Uh, to uh, to Homer and to, to ancient texts, but I mean, I'll come back to that in a second. But that's his point. And he says, but in Dante, for example, you have him, he starts with Genesis and, and the account of, of, of Isaac, sacrifice of Isaac, and, and how uh, the plotting of that is, is, is highly symbolic. There are large gaps in the narrative because of uh, the fact that symbols are the, what was important in that story. And he sees a pretty stark difference between you know, the biblical uh, you know, stories and the Homeric um, stories. And then he comes up to Dante and sees Dante sort of wedding sort of the realism of the Homeric epic with the, the symbolism of, of the Bible in, in something you know, like the Divine Comedy. And of course, if you've read, I'm sure everyone has the Divine Comedy, you know, just that opening scene of, 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 of waking up you know, in the dark wood, you know, all those words are symbolic, you know, I mean, it's this, you know, spiritually and, and suggestive, you know, Dante suggests, doesn't state, but he suggests that the way you get off the path is not by choosing the path, uh, not by choosing evil, but just forgetting to do good and uh, not choosing um, the good and, um, and, and, and it goes on and on. So Dante is always like this. And I think, and that's what he's saying in that sense. If you, if you know, if you've read, you know, even some of the plays like Oedipus, uh, and look at that, um, you see how um, foreshadowing is the major literary tool used in Oedipus. I mean, every, you know, uh, you know, little line that uh, we have in that, in that, in that play, it, it, you know, the readers know exactly what happened in the story, right? They know. And so when you, when they foreshadow, when it's foreshadowing what's going to happen next, there's a pleasure in sort of knowing. Um, and so you have foreshadowing as a major technique, but, um, and you do have that obviously in Christian literature as well, but, but, um, but Arbach sees symbolism as is the as the as the as the the change. Now I think he's a little bit unfair because I think you do have symbolism in the Iliad, the Odyssey. Um, you think about in the Iliad, maybe you know these the battle scenes where um, uh, you know a character is is stabbing another you know character, 
and um, and lifts him up out of the air, you know, like like a fish on a line. You know, I mean, there's there's these constant contrasts between uh, violence and you know, the idyllic life of the countryside and the farmer. Hmm. Uh, not not symbolic per se, but but there's more going on there than just immediate gratification. So I think he's a little bit unfair. But I do think that there is a certainly a shift in in that regard with with Christian poetry. There's a, a, an openness to symbolism in Christian poetry that you have largely, you know, because of the incarnation, because we, we believe uh, that uh, physical stuff and spiritual stuff can exist and they're both important. You're, you're in the poetry world and, and the academic world. Is Christian poetry today flourishing inside the university where so many poets now make a living? Yes and no, I would say. I, I think the academic world largely ignored Christian poetry because it didn't uh, fit predetermined paradigms. You know, academics love to invent periods that don't really exist, like postmodernism, because it helps them to sell books and to categorize things and put people together that maybe don't really belong together. So in the academic world, for many years, they were obsessed with you know, uh, the New York School of Poets, the Black Mountain Poets, the Beats, and then you had the second generation of all of those schools, um, which was very simplistic. You know, in reality, you know, it was much messier, uh, contemporary uh, modern American poetry. Um, but they would focus on those things that were, you know, easily, easy to package and, you know, very helpful in getting getting tenure. And so Christian poetry didn't really, you know, uh, fit that package. Um, so yeah, I think in some ways it's mostly mostly ignored, but at the same time, one reason I think there has been a renaissance of, of Christian poetry is because of all of these, you know, Christian colleges that you have in the United States. So when you think about, you know, the world that we live in, the United States and, you know, in England or just the UK broadly, uh, you know, in terms of the water we drink, it's different, but not that different. So why does it that you had a, a revival or um, of Christian poetry in America and not so much in, in the UK? And so I think one reason is you have all of these um, Christian universities and, and colleges where one, these writers can actually work and they can write poems that are appreciated by their, their colleges and, and universities. And um, and you do see Christian um, poets gaining sort of in prestige when Franz Wright uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for Walking in Martha's Vineyard in 2004. I mean, that was a watershed moment. Um, that was that's a very explicitly Christian uh, book. It starts off with an apology for for God, um, and so um, so you had that, and I think that encouraged other poets to begin more openly. Christian poets more openly writing about um, faith and. You have folks now like Christian Wyman, poetry editor for many years, um, who, who's written um, openly Christian uh, uh, works, Tracy K. Smith and uh, David Middleton and, and all sorts of figures who I think um, are, are much more appreciated than they were, say, 20 or 30 years ago. The book is Christian Poetry in America Since 1940. Micah Maddox, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.